Amen. You can be seated. And uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us. And uh, we are going to dive into the Word. Today is our seventh part of this series. And actually, if you ever wonder how many services we've uh, missed due to the coronavirus or how many we've done online, we haven't missed any. Um, the, this series began on that first day. So we're in week seven of online services. And I've entitled this one Beyond the Limits, Beyond the Limits. And if you've got a Bible, I want you to open to the book of Acts. We're going to go to, I believe, Acts chapter 7 is where we're going to start. But I'm going to, again, lay a little bit of a foundation before we get there. Um, As we've been reading the untold story, again, uh, this week we read chapter 7 in the untold story. And Acts chapter 5 through Acts chapter 11. And we were looking at uh, how all of these events begin to tie together in the timeline of those different events. This week, we're going to read chapter 8 from the untold story, and then Acts chapter 11, verse 19, through Acts chapter 13, verse 12. If you're looking for a copy of the the reading schedule, we put those together. You can find them online, or you can also uh, pick one up here at the church. If you don't have a copy of the untold story, we still have some of those available here at our church campus, and you can come by and uh, make sure you call first. We don't know exactly when we're in the building, but we'll make sure that we get you a copy of that. And please continue to use Slack. Um, we want you to, um, to post some things on there. We want you to share your thoughts and insights as you're reading through that. And then also today, I made available um, on our church download page some maps and also a, um, a new believer study guide that we're going to get to at the end of the message today. So if you haven't downloaded them yet, I do have pictures that I'm going to put up a little bit later, and uh, we'll show you those. But you can download those, and those are to help us understand the context. Last week, we went through in great detail um, the story, trusting the story from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And that handout that I put together last week is also available on our church download page. You can go back and you can be a part of that. But I also, on our church Facebook page, posted this week a video um, by Bill Johnson. And Bill was having a Zoom call with a group of pastors from Alaska, and he did a, a brief teaching. Um, Well, it was actually about 45 minutes of teaching. Um, Don't get discouraged by the first 10 or 12 minutes. Just skip ahead. Those are all the introductions and how everybody met Bill. But his teaching starts around minutes 13 or 14. And uh, a lot of nuggets that he puts in there that I think really apply to our church. And one of them, he was talking about how um, when God reveals a new truth, he does not abolish the old truth. He builds on it. And he used the example when Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you slaves, servants, now I call you friends. Jesus is not abolishing servanthood. We are still God's servants. But when Jesus says, you know, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. That friendship revelation that he's giving is actually built on the servanthood revelation. So it's not like there's, we're no longer servants, we're now just friends. No, we are friends built upon being God's servants. And when, I, when he shared that, I couldn't help but think of everything we've been talking about. When Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the old covenant. I didn't come to abolish the Torah, the law, or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. He came to build the new covenant upon the old covenant. And that's why it's so important that we understand this old covenant as we move into the new covenant. 
And so last week we talked about the day of Pentecost at Mount Moriah or the Temple Mount. And we compared it with Mount Sinai when the Israelites came out of Egypt. And you might have noticed as you read the untold story, Frank puts them in the upper room. Okay. Now, I could have said, oh, no, Frank put them in the upper room. So we're not going to read this book. I'm throwing it out. Uh, Frank and I disagree. I think they were at the Temple Mount. Frank puts them in the upper room. But the rest of the story uh, was just too good to throw that book away because we disagreed on one small thing. But whatever, wherever they were, the point was the Holy Spirit came to live in them, and they now become the new temple, a new living temple with the words of God, not written on tablets of stone, but upon our hearts. And it's in all the prophets that God in this new covenant is going to write his law, his Torah upon our hearts. And we know on the day of Pentecost, there was the sound, just like there was at Mount Sinai. There was fire, just like there was at Mount Sinai. God spoke, just like he did at Mount Sinai. And the difference, at Mount Sinai, 3,000 people died as a result of their idol worship. But on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. And now God dwells in us, and this community, this church is born. And if you remember the four pillars that we saw in this church, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're going re- to re-highlight these a little bit later on. But they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, whatever Jesus taught the apostles, they're now teaching to them. So when Jesus taught them for 40 days after his resurrection, that he began to open their minds to the scriptures. So they understood beginning at Moses all the way through how the Messiah fulfilled all of this. That's what the disciples, the apostles are now passing on to all of these new converts. They committed themselves to community. Okay, the word is koinonia in the Greek. And we sometimes translate that fellowship. And so we're like, we got to have fellowship with people. We got to have like potlucks. We got to have meals. We got to have times together, fellowship. But the, the word is actually they committed themselves to the fellowship. Okay, so yes, there was this hospitality. Yes, there were potlucks, but they were committed in a relationship. There was connection. And I think sometimes we can have church worship services and church potlucks and not be committed to the fellowship. And that's what this group of people were doing. They were committed to the body of Christ, to the local fellowship. They were committed to hospitality, to sharing with anyone who had a need, and they were committed to prayer, to maintaining their connection to God. And then they begin to to live out this this Jewish law, if you will. They begin to live out the Torah, the fulfillment of it and what it looked like. And if you remember, Pentecost was actually the feast where they commemorated the giving of the Torah, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And now that's happening here on the day of Pentecost. They're, They're commemorating, you will, this law giving, but... The feast of Passover that we talked about, the shedding of blood, was actually where God brought them into relationship, and then he gave them the Torah. So now, Jesus' death and resurrection is our Passover. He brings us here, and he gives us the Torah, the law. He writes it upon our hearts. All of this, these different feasts, are important for us to remember that our, our coming to God is all about grace. It's all about a gift. 
It's all about rescue. It's all about redemption. It's all about liberation. And I think many times when we look at the law given at Mount Sinai, far too many of us look at that as these instructions, these strict rules that are given out by this fire-breathing God at Mount Sinai, telling people they have to obey. They have to put this, they have to do these things or they're not going to be right with God. But I believe God has already made them right with himself by bringing them out by the death of the Passover lamb, by the blood. And he brings them to Sinai and he says, here's the covenant I'm going to make with you. So you live this out because we know that the, the Israelites from that day forward did not live out the law. They did not live out the commands of God fully. And yet God continues to give them redemption. He continues to redeem them. If you just look at the book of Judges and how many times the Israelites are, fail to uphold the covenant and God redeems them. God redeems them. It shows us the mercy of God. It shows us that God has come to fully redeem his people. And I think this is important because to me, this is the story that God has told from the beginning. And I think we have created a church that is trying to measure up to a standard that God has already met for us. And when we say we've got to live from the finished work of Christ and not towards it, that's not just theology. That's got to be something that gets so deep within us that Passover fully satisfies our relationship with God. We are made perfect with God in that moment. And now we live out of that so that the world can see this God. We put him on display by living out what he's put for us. And so when you look at the, the nation of Israel and how they did in this, they come into the land and they, they have King Saul, who is their king. And then after Saul is David, a man after God's own heart. If you study this out, Saul was actually a, a king based upon the, like the kings like the other countries had. Okay, he was handsome. He stood taller than everyone else. He was the type of king that other countries would have had. But Saul was a donkey herder. Okay, so you cannot miss the imagery. God gives them a king according to the kind of king they're asking for, a donkey herder. Okay, when he gives them David, David is the man he chooses, a shepherd, a man after his own heart. God is explaining and showing to the people what he wants. And then comes Solomon. And we, we look at the nation of Israel under the reign of Solomon, and we think those are the glory days of Israel. The glory days of Israel are not King Solomon. They are King David. If you look at the prophetic references, son of David, King David, it's not, it's not reestablish the reign of Solomon. It's reestablish the reign of David on the earth. Because I believe in Solomon, we're starting to see the decline. The Israelites are starting to walk away from the story. Some of you are like, hey, where, what about the book of Acts? Just track with me for one second, and we'll get back to the book of Acts. But in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 15, look at what it says. This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, the royal palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezar. Now, I want you to understand, I want you to look at this word. The account of the forced labor. Solomon uses slaves to build the temple, his palace, the supporting terraces on his palace, the wall of Jerusalem. 
and the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gazar. And if you want to know, this is the trade route that runs through. The reason that everyone wanted to conquer the land of Israel is not because it's this great land. It's a trade route. It goes from the Mediterranean to Egypt to Assyria and Mesopotamia and to Babylon in the north. So this is an important trade route. And these are the three stops along the way. He is building military bases. He is building the temple. And he's doing it on the backs of the Israelites. You cannot build a strong earthly empire kingdom without building it on the backs of the people. And this, Solomon is beginning to lose the story. And we see it later on in 1 Kings chapter 12 when his son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. And the people come and look at this. They say, your father, Solomon, put a heavy yoke on us, but lighten the harsh labor, the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. This is a, a defining moment for Rehoboam to get back to God's story. But he doesn't. He looks at the people and he says, if you think my father was bad, wait till you get a taste of what I'm like. And he says, I'm going to be worse than my father. So he splits the kingdom. The ten tribes of the north split away and Jeroboam becomes their king. And the two tribes of the south stay loyal to the throne of David and Rehoboam becomes their king. And it's this dark period in Israel's history where it further leads them into idolatry. But here's the point. When people begin to forget the story, the story of caring, the story of giving mercy, the story of reaching out for the widow, the poor, being the priesthood on display for the world around them, when they forget that, everything else falls into chaos. And idolatry begins to slip in. And sexual immorality begins to slip in. And even child sacrifice begins to slip in because they forgot the story that God was telling. His justice, his mercy, and then the humility, remembering where we came from. And you're going to hear those words again today. But one last scripture, or excuse me, two more scriptures from the Old Testament. This is the, the call of Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. When he says, you go into the, the land, don't pick a king like other kings. Pick a king like, like after God's heart. And then he says this, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the re people return to Egypt to get more of them. And if you look at the story of King Solomon, the first thing listed that Solomon did was go to Egypt to get horses and chariots. He's violating the very words Moses told him not to do. Why? Because he wants to build an empire for himself. He wants to build a kingdom like the kingdoms of the world around them. They're forgetting the story. Then he says this, or he says, the Lord told you not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. What's the second thing we know Solomon for? His many wives and concubines. And the last one, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. The very things Moses warned, do not do, Solomon begins to do. And the kingdom begins to lose the story God has never wanted them to lose. So when God sends them into exile, it's because they have come so far from the story, they're now the anti-story. And if you look at the prophets and really read the words of the prophets to the people of Israel before they go into exile, it's not necessarily their idolatry. It's not necessarily their sexual immorality or any of the breaking of Torah. What 
they overwhelmingly say to the people is, you have stopped promoting justice. You have stopped promoting mercy. You have stopped walking humbly with God. In fact, those are the words of the prophet Micah in Micah 6.8. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And Jesus is going to use those a little bit later in our message today. But I want to read from one prophet, Amos. Amos is literally the first prophet to prophesy to the northern kingdom before the Assyrians take them into captivity. And this is what Amos says. Look at these words. I hate, not Amos, but God. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Wait a minute. These are the festivals you told us to do. How could you hate them? Your assemblies are a stench to me. What? Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard from them. Away with your noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. And here's why. Hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. It's not that the idolatry doesn't matter. I believe Uh, The idolatry, the other sins of the nation of Israel stem from the fact they have forgotten the story. The story of God is justice. The story of God is mercy. The temple is all about mercy. God offered mercy before we ever asked for it. Okay? While we were his enemies, he died for us. Mercy. Mercy was given before you and I ever asked. That's God. That's what he wants us to be on this earth. This is important that we understand the story of the old covenant because we're about to see it lived out in the new covenant. Okay, these good Jewish people, they know the story. They know what these prophets were saying. They know what they had forgotten. And Jesus started calling them back to it. And now the apostles are saying, look, what Jesus said, what the prophet said, it's the fulfillment. They begin to draw out the fullest meaning so that they can live this out. In fact, if Jesus, if you remember, said all the law, the prophets, and the writings can be summed up in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the story because when we remember where we came from, we give mercy we give grace. And Jesus gave his harshest criticisms for those that were not being merciful, those that were not pouring out mercy and forgiveness on the people around them. And we're going to see that in Acts chapter 1 through 12. And I hope as you've read through this and as you've used the untold story and even the maps that I've sent to you uh, to be able to utilize, I hope it's helped you understand this story in a clearer way. Because Acts chapter 1 through 12 is literally about a 10 to 12 year time period. And sometimes we read one verse to the next or one paragraph to the next or one chapter to the next. And we don't account for the time and the space that's actually taking place. And we're going to try to unpack a little bit of that for you so that you understand the foundation that's being laid. And the reason I think we need to know this is because there's an important importance of daily obedience. There's an importance of daily seeking. There's an importance of daily faithfulness. I mean, we sometimes look, hey, the Holy Spirit's poured out and boom, all of a sudden, these people are able to like wow the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
Mm, there was a training period. There was a, a day after day after a day continuing in the temple, continuing in the apostles' teaching, continuing in the fellowship, continuing in daily prayer. There was a period of years where they were growing in their understanding. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit was poured out and the next day they were doing unbelievable miracles. This was a growth. This was an expanse. And we get discouraged sometimes because we, you know, we get baptized in the Holy Spirit and we're like, why isn't it instantaneous? Now, I'm not here to tell you that it can't be instantaneous, but I'm saying that we need to continue to grow and be faithful whether we feel something or don't feel something, that, that we're not praying for this great big revival moment, but that we're faithful in the everyday life until the one day comes. And there are two places that this word one day is used in the, the story that we've read this, these last couple weeks here. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple like they did every day, every day, every day for years. They're on the way to the temple. But in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, it says, one day, one day, Peter looks at the beggar that they had probably passed by on other days as a part of every day. But on this one day, revival breaks out and thousands get saved because of this man's healing. The other one is found in Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius is he and his family are devout God-fearing. Okay, that means they're Greeks, but because they're God-fearing, they're trying to follow the Greek law, the Torah. So he gives generously to those in need. He's doing this, okay? This is a part of Torah that give generously to those in, in, in need. Don't miss that. Even this Gentile got it. He prayed regularly to God. In fact, on the... At 3 o'clock in the afternoon is the ninth hour. This is the time of prayer for the Jews. But look at what it says. One day. How many days was he praying regularly to God? How many days was he giving to the needy? He was daily doing this. And one day, an angel comes to him and says, Cornelius, and he sends to it. And so this idea of faithfulness, steadfastness, keep reading, keep praying, keep seeking, keep obeying, because this is what's important. I know for some of you, you're like, oh, Pastor Tom, you're, giving, you're telling us all these things you're reading and studying and doing. That's my job, okay? I want some of these for you too. I want you to begin to read it and study it. But don't be like, there's just too much. I can't do anything. Just do something. Get in the Word every day. Get in prayer every day. Do bite-sized ch chunks. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Do something because if you keep doing this every day, one day the lights are going to come on. I've told you that I started this journey back in 2012, and it was not every day. I'm not going to tell you I did this every day, but it was a constant journey, and one day, and still one day, things are starting to click for me, and uh, I want you to keep doing that too. And so the timeline, as we look at it, we, we believe the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in AD 30. And sometime between A.D. 30 and A.D. 33, Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John heal this crippled man, begins to take place. We know that the persecution begins to happen in Acts chapter 4 right after that because the apostles are persecuted. But we know persecution is going to ramp up later on. But it's a period of one to three years from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Okay, so up to three years, a time period. 
Then around AD 33, there's what we call this crisis in Jerusalem. Literally, the first church fight happens. Woo! It's a big one because the Greek Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, and the Hebraic, the Hebrew Jews, are fighting because you're supposed to take care of the widows. It's a part of Torah. It's huge. This is foundational. And the, the Greeks are like, hey, ours are being overlooked. You're, you Hebrews are like caring for your own, but you're not taking care of ours. And the apostles come to them and they're like, hey, we don't have time for this. We've got to study the, the scriptures. We've got to teach. We've got to pull out the fulfillment. They're still not even fully understanding it. So appoint for yourself people that can do this. And we're going to read that in just a moment. And then so AD 33 to 34, that happens. And then somewhere between 35 and 37. So anywhere in at least a two-year or even three-year time period, between the appointment of these first deacons and the persecution or Stephen's death that really takes the lid off of persecution. So in Acts chapter 6, if you've got your Bible there, the 12 gathered together all the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the, the word of God in order to wait on the table. So, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you, okay? But not just seven, any, any men, Men known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Okay, so these are people that are already doing it. They're already full of the Spirit. Their lives are displaying it in some way. They're full of wisdom. They have an understanding of the law and how to carry it out. So there's, they're probably going to the temple every day. They're probably sitting listening to the apostles. They've got a reputation for faithfulness already. And so they choose these seven men and they turn this responsibility over to them so they give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Please understand that the first century church, the person that was in charge or the group that was in charge of the main teaching of the word, their only job was prayer and the, the, the studying of the word. And I, I honestly believe the reason that we have gotten away from the understanding of the Torah and the, the understanding of the Old Covenant and how the new fits in is because we've taken pastors and we've said, hey, you, do, you be pastor, you be prophet, you be evangelist, you be uh, teacher, and all, you also be apostle. You do all of those ministries. And so you, you're, you're, you're not able to put the time in like these apostles who were with Jesus, who had studied the Torah all their lives. How can we as pastors adequately teach on it if we've got all of these other irons in the fire? Now, I'm not saying we scrap everything and start over, but it's something for us to think about because these men that were appointed to this need to take care of the needs were freeing up the apostles to be able to teach and to be able to study and to be able to pray. Okay, that was very important to them. So the proposal pleases the whole group, and they choose Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith, and also Philip. And now I, I didn't put any of the other names, and they presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, so then we're going to start with Stephen. He's the guy that's listed first, full of faith, full of the Spirit. And here we see him in Acts chapter 6, waiting on tables. But look at this. He's full of God's grace and power, and somehow he's not just waiting on tables. He's performing miracles, signs, and wonders among the people. 
Whoa, this is the first record we have beyond the original apostles of someone performing signs. Again, it didn't just happen when the, the apostles laid their hands on them. This is a process. This is day after day, waiting on tables, fulfilling his responsibility. There were days he woke up, didn't feel like going to the temple. There are days he's woke up, I don't feel like re reciting the Shema. There are days I wake up, I don't feel like waiting on those tables today. But I'm going to keep doing it because it's what I'm living out, who God is. And this is who God is. And as a result of that, these great signs and wonders begin to take place. And two verses later, he starts arguing with all of these, these teachers of the law, these very studied men, and no one can stand up to his wisdom. He's the first ones to, to start going beyond the limits of his job, if you will. He was elected to wait tables and meet needs, and the Holy Spirit just begins to explode out of him. That release out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Now, we look at it, and we're like, well, his teaching gift and his, his signs and wonders gift, wow, those are impressive. They are not more impressive than his waiting on tables gift. In fact, the law comes back to time and time again to care for widows. What is pure and undefiled religion? James, the brother of Jesus, says to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Not signs and wonders. Not being able to, to wow the teachers. Orphans and widows. Okay, so this is important. This, I believe, flows out of when we capture the heart of God to have mercy, justice, and hum humility, walking humbly with him. Now, we know that Stephen's work in Acts chapter 7 gets him murdered. Okay, and the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're there, they're angry, they stone him. But he not only goes beyond the limits of his job, he goes beyond the limits of human forgiveness. Because look at the words of Acts chapter 7, verse 59 and 60. While they are stoning him. I want you to understand, to stone someone is basically for you to throw them down and you, you basically pelt them with as large of rocks as you can find, literally large boulders, and you, you throw them at them until they just stop breathing. Okay? That's a horrific way to die. And they are stoning him. And while it's happening, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Look at the mercy and the forgiveness that flows out of him. The, to me, this is the foundation of Torah. This is the foundation of the law. When Jesus says to the people, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who persecute you. Luke records in Luke 6.36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. See, you've got to understand mercy is withholding that which is deserved. So if someone deserves punishment and wrath and you give mercy, it means you withhold it. Grace is giving what is undeserved. It's giving a gift on top of it. God gave mercy before we asked for it, and he offers grace before we ask for it. Yes, you have to receive it in humility. Yes, you have to admit you've sinned, and yes, you have to put faith in Christ in order for that grace to be applied to you, but it is fully offered before you ever ask for it. 
that is the foundation of God. And Jesus, even when he's walking on the earth, this is what he's trying to establish in the hearts of the people. He's teaching them the fulfillment of the law. And in Matthew chapter 9, he says to the Pharisees, well, the Pharisees, excuse me, say first, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Literally, the translation, many of your translations will say scum. Because that's how these people are viewed. Why is he eating with scum? That's what they're viewed as. Tax collectors are sellouts. And on hearing this, Jesus says, it is not the healthy, the righteous, who need a doctor, but the sick. And so he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 12 because the Pharisees again come. The disciples are walking through a field. It's the Sabbath. They're a little hungry. They snap off some heads of grain. They start harvesting. You catching this? Harvesting on the Sabbath by breaking off some heads of grain, preparing them, and then eating them because they were hungry. And they're like, teacher, your, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. They're harvesting. He says, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. <laughs> He's pointing us back to the words of Hosea in Hosea 6. When Hosea prophesies, the second prophet before anyone goes into captivity, to say to the people, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in case you missed it, Hosea was the one that was supposed to marry an unfaithful prostitute so she would continue to be unfaithful to him and he would model mercy and forgiveness and grace to her because that's what God continued to do for his people even though they rejected him. And God in that moment says, I desire mercy, not your sacrifices. This is what the point of the sacrifices is. The whole point of the temple is about mercy. Every time you see an animal slaughtered for your sin, remember, I have given you mercy. I am a God of mercy. The temple is about mercy. And you priests who are there day after day after day after day have missed the fact that it's all about mercy. And these teachers of the law should have understood it, but they didn't. And in the church, we struggle with this. God says to us, forgive as Christ forgave you. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus was crucified. That's how he forgave you. And we rationalize it. And look, I understand there are things that people do to us that really hurt us. And we think, well, if I give them mercy, how are they ever going to learn? Don't you think God ever thought that too? If I give them mercy, how are they ever going to learn? Because mercy is a great teacher. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's his goodness. I'm not saying there's not a time to correct. And I'm not saying there's not a time for people to, to face a justice. But God is a God of mercy. And I think more than anything, the church has lost the story of God because we have forgotten to be merciful. I do not believe the world outside the doors of our church knows that we serve a merciful God. We think that, the, that we serve a God that has this list and he's holding this list over our heads and if we don't measure up to this list, he just can't wait to come and smite us or judge us or condemn us. But all along, all along he said, I have given you mercy. 
That does not mean we can live however we want because when you truly taste the mercy God has provided for us, I think like them in the book of Acts, we start giving to those that are in need. We start being committed to one another like never before. And the world will know that we're his disciples by our love, not by our miracles, not by our understanding of the Torah and how great we can put a presentation together, by our love. And this is throughout, oh, this is throughout the old covenant and the new covenant. And the more I study it and read it, the more I love it. Because the kingdom of God does not operate like the kingdom of the world. Remember Paul's admonition to us in the book of Romans. Do not be overcome by evil. Leave vengeance to God. Okay? When someone wrongs you, don't take vengeance in your own hands. Leave it to God. Because God will repay. God knows how to repay. He knows it. But what does he say? Overcome evil with good. That's how we overcome evil. You want to overcome evil in our society? Learn to be merciful. Learn to act justly. Give yourself to those that are needy. One of the things I love about the American nation is that when we were founded, we weren't just founded on the Judeo principles of morality. We were founded with open borders. We were founded with justice for all. Look at what was inscribed. I don't have it in front of me, but on the, 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 the Statue of Liberty. Bring us your tired. Bring us your poor. Bring us your needy. Where is that cry? Yeah, we're crying out for, for, for sexual morality in our nation, and we're crying out for the ending of abortion. But why aren't we crying out the same things that were in the hearts of our founding fathers? Because now we're like, well, that's not possible. We really can't have open borders. We really can't care for the foreigner. We can't really care for the poor. That's what it was built on. And we have built an American empire on the backs of the poor. And don't think God doesn't see that because that's the foundation of Torah. And I believe all of the other immorality stems from the fact that we have forgotten the story. The story is about justice, not justice the way we define it, but justice the way God defines it in the law. And it's about caring for those. It's about remembering we've been set free. It's about remembering we've been given mercy. It's about remembering the grace that God's given to us, his full acceptance of us when we didn't deserve it. And that's the message we need to continue to tell the people. I know if you're, we were in the room, you'd be amening like crazy right now. But I want to look at Philip. Philip is our next deacon. And I've got a map for Philip. And you can find this map uh, on our download section. And basically, here's Philip's story. He starts down in Jerusalem, and he moves up to Samaria. So he would have traveled this route. Because you remember the Jews and the Samaritans? The Samaritans are unclean. Samaritans, they're not good people. Okay, They are part Jew, part mixed other races. And then they're their worship was that way. When Jesus met with the woman at the well, she's like, well, we worship here on this mountain and you worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus is like, a time is coming when it's not going to be this mountain or Jerusalem because you're going to be the temple. He didn't tell her that, but that's what's coming. And so Philip, this deacon, this is crazy. None of the apostles have left Jerusalem yet to spread the gospel, even though Jesus said, go make disciples in Jerusalem. All Judea, Samaria, all the other parts of the earth. And the disciples are still in Jerusalem. Up to 10 years later. And 10 years later, a deacon. Wow. 
beyond the limits of Jerusalem, goes to Samaria, the last people in the world. And then the Lord's going to send him down to Gaza. Okay, there's a road going from Jerusalem to Gaza we're going to read about. And then after that encounter, he goes to Azotus and then up to Caesarea, and he spends 20 years of his life in Caesarea. I just want you to look on the map how far Samaria is from Gaza and that how far Jerusalem, where all the other thousands of Christians are, and the apostles, 10 of them at least, are in Jerusalem, nine of them, are in Jerusalem. And I want you to notice that, okay? So Acts chapter 8, if you've got your Bible, those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Philip went down. <laughs> Did you notice it was north? <laughs> but when you leave Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, you never go down to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. So when you leave Jerusalem, no matter what direction you go, you're going down. Okay, so that's just a geographical and a theological statement. <coughs> so all of you people that I went to school with in North Dakota who went up to Aber, yeah, I get what you were saying now. Ellendale, even though it was south, it was like up. <laughs> I know what you were saying now. I get it. <laughs> and for all the people in Ellendale that I've just offended, I totally apologize. I should stick to my notes. <laughs> so <laughs> Acts chapter 8, look at this. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere. Philip went down to Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah there. Okay, this guy who's been doing it day after day after day, being faithful. When they saw Philip, or heard Philip, and saw the signs he performed, they, they paid close attention. With shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. I want you to understand this. Before Jesus, before the apostles, these are the first two people, these two deacons in the book of Acts that are teaching, and they're, they're going beyond the limits. This is incredible. Pastor John this week in Slack he highlighted the verse from Acts chapter 5, verse 16, where it says crowds gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick, those to, to, tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. And then Pastor John said this, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is at the right hand of the Father, and the same Spirit that helped Jesus has now been given to those who ask. This verse is of the disciples performing the same works Jesus did. It's an invitation to us all to continue pursuing God's kingdom on earth, and amen. And he's talking about the apostles, but now even more with these two deacons. It's The doors are starting to spring wide open. It's about time for the gift that we've received to start flowing out of us as we diligently study the scriptures. You know why we diligently study? Because it keeps reminding us. So then when we're faced with someone that's in need, we remember what we've put in. We remember we have what they need and we let the rivers of living water flow out of us to minister to them and we give as we're able. Then in, in, in chapter 8 again, verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem, they hear about Samaria, they've accepted the word. So look at this. Now they have to send Peter and John to Samaria. So they pray for the new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Whoa. Time out. Believers receive the Holy Spirit. 
Again, this is going back to what we've already watched. I don't have time to go back. You've got to go back and listen. But we believe the Holy Spirit comes to live inside every believer. But the baptism, the immersion in the Holy Spirit, the releasing, this baptism is different. Okay, It's not more of the Spirit. It's more of us released to the control of the Spirit. And they lay their hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. And after they further proclaim the word, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. But I want us to look at the new assignment that is given to Peter in verses 20, or excuse me, Philip in verse 26. An angel of the Lord says to Philip, okay, Philip's having revival. So much good happening way up here in Samaria. And the Lord says, go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. What? I mean, I'm here. I've established this work. Don't I get to stay? Why can't you find someone else to go down to Gaza? And he started out on his way, and he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in the charge of all the treasury of the Kondike, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. So here's a eunuch. He's going to go back to Ethiopia. He's going to have influence with the queen of Ethiopia. This is the uttermost parts of the earth. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he's sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. His heart is open, and the Holy Spirit's like, I need someone to talk to him. Why doesn't he take the nine apostles that are in Jerusalem? They're closer. Philip's busy up here in Samaria. Why does he pick Philip? Because Philip went to Samaria. He's already gone to the unclean class. He's already broken out. Some of the Jews are like, ah, you know, I don't know if this is for like people beyond the Jews yet. So they're not sure. But Philip doesn't care. It's like Philip's like, I know the gospel's messy, but I'm going to present it to anybody. And I believe he picks him on purpose. Because if you know the Torah, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, look, this is the cleanest version I could find. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. That's a eunuch. Okay, if you understand what's going on there, if you don't, talk to your parents later. But this is, this is what he's saying. This guy doesn't have a right to the assembly, yet he's reading the law. Philip's the kind of guy that's going to preach to this guy that shouldn't have the right to come into the assembly, and he is going to give mercy because the guy gets baptized, and he goes off, and he goes back to Ethiopia, probably preaching and proclaiming the message of the Messiah. The problem with the church is we look at some of these situations and we're like, I don't know if I can, you know, give mercy to that one. Uh, you know, should I give mercy? Give mercy. Give mercy. Preach the gospel. Be true to who Jesus was. Be true to the law. But sometimes we're going to run into situations that I would say err on the side of grace and mercy every single time. So we come back to our timeline. Stephen is stoned. Philip does his stuff here. But sometime between AD 37 and AD 40, so between the time the Holy Spirit is poured out, seven to ten years later is when Saul, in, in Acts chapter 9, has this encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. And I also gave you a map about the Apostle Saul, the Apostle Paul. Because Okay, he's in Jerusalem down at the bottom, and he comes up to Damascus, and somewhere on that road, he encounters the Lord. Now, if you're just reading through the book of Acts, he's in Damascus, he begins teaching in Damascus, and then the next thing, right away, he's back into Jerusalem. 
But if you read the rest of the story, this triangle that we put out here in Arabia, this is not a desert. There are towns out here. There are places that there are settlements. But Paul spends up to three years in this area. And he tells us in Galatians chapter 1, when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might consult so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. I went into Arabia. Okay, before he meets with the church in Damascus, before he goes to Jerusalem, he goes into Arabia and later returns to Damascus and preaches for up to three years. Okay, so we don't know how long he's in Arabia. We know from Arabia and Damascus, it's a three-year time period. Learning directly from Jesus. This man who studied the law all of his life, Jesus is now unpacking it for him in fresh ways. And he sends him off to Jerusalem. He gets acquainted. Got to get my map back. He gets acquainted with the, the apostles, but then he gets persecuted, so they send him to Caesarea. And he goes up to Tarsus. And later on, Barnabas is going to go up here to Antioch where there's some new Christians and he stops and he gets Paul and he brings Paul to Antioch. Okay, so that's kind of where Paul is. It gives you a brief introduction, but um, you would, you're not going to know that from reading the story uh, just in chronological order the way Luke tells it. But later on in Acts chapter 22, this verse, Paul says, when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and the Lord said, quick, Leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony. But Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe. And then the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed. I stood there giving approval. I mean, he's like arguing, I should stay here. And the Lord's like, go. I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. <laughs> Which I'm sure in his mind, he had to be like, huh? But that's what he did. He goes to Caesarea and then up into Tarsus where he's from. And then he'll later go on to Antioch. Then I want to give you the map of Peter. That's also on there. We're not going to take a lot of time. Um, don't pay attention to these arrows. But this was the best map I could find because Peter goes from Jerusalem. He goes up to Lydda, and there are some miracles that happen there. A man that is bedridden for eight years and is paralyzed is healed. And then he hears about this woman, Tabitha, who died over in Joppa. She's a great saint. And so he goes to Joppa, and he raises her from the dead. And then he stays in Joppa for a time. But then that's where he has this vision. And the vision has to be given to him three times because he's about to go all the way up to Caesarea, right? I think it's Caesarea. And he has to go all the way up there to, to preach to a Gentile. And even after he sees the vision three times, and he goes and he goes into this house of the Gentile, they're all still shocked that the Holy Spirit comes on them. They're like, what's going on? We know now that God wants the Gentiles to be saved too. And, and I can just imagine Jesus up in heaven going, ah, oh, they finally got it. I mean, after... All that I've been telling them. They finally got it. I want you to understand something. He is so merciful. He is so merciful. He is working with you. He wants you to stay in pursuit. And so the challenge I want to leave you with today comes back to the challenge I gave you at the beginning. It's the challenge I gave you last week. Stay committed to the apostles' teaching. 
the law, the prophets, the writings, the fulfillment of it. They're continuing brick by brick to do it. Don't, please, please, don't be overwhelmed by all of the resources I'm throwing out there. Here's what I know. All of you like different things. Some of you like videos. Some of you like podcasts. Some of you like books. Some of you like teaching. Some of you like short clips. So I'm throwing everything I know to throw at you, to help you, because it's not just Pastor Tom on Sunday. You gotta, you got to study this on your own. But we've got to commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching, brick by brick, understanding who the Messiah was, who the Messiah is, and who the Messiah will be, so that we understand the story God is telling us and we come back to it. Be committed to community. Be committed to community, to the fellowship. Remember the story is us. It's not just my personal faith in Jesus, it's us. The, the word you, plural, is used often in the New Testament. We have been grafted into the story of Abraham and the Israelites. We are a part of that us now. And this is still an us. We commit ourselves to that community. And then we commit ourselves to hospitality, to sharing what we have with others, to the meeting of needs. Even if need be, selling possessions to give to the poor. We love our neighbor. We don't have to put ourselves in economic hardship, but we give out of our surplus. We give out of our abundance. And oftentimes as Americans, we're like, well, that person could work just as hard as me. I got what I have because I worked hard. Don't forget what God said to the Israelites when they sent them into the land. You're going to be tempted to think you did this. In the New Testament, James says, every good gift comes from God. Nothing you or I have, no possession, no savings account, no bank account, no nothing comes from our hard work ethic. It all comes from God. And if we remember the story, we remember who we are, we walk humbly with God, we act justly, we love mercy, we walk humbly, and we definitely maintain prayer. Our communion, our connection to God, to abide in Christ, this is so, so, so vital. And the last thing I want to leave you, there is a download called Knowing How, um, the Knowing God Study, and it's talking about being ready to share the good news. And you can you can memorize that. This screen, if you want to take a picture of it, or if you want to, um, so if you can leave it up just for a few minutes, uh, let them take a picture of it. This is how you put your testimony on paper. The download is going to tell you how to talk about salvation in Jesus, what Jesus did for us, how we put that into practice. But this is your testimony. And we as the body of Christ have got to learn in one or two or three minutes to talk to people all the time about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's done for us. And if we can get good at doing this, then we are going to be able to present the gospel. We have got to get ready. The baptism in the Holy Spirit doesn't just put all of this in our minds. We got to do this. And so start looking about how your life was before Jesus, how it's been since you met Jesus, and your life now since Jesus. Try to do this in one to two minutes max. You're going to have to write it out. You're going to have to remove the religious vocabulary that we're so fond of. You're going to have to practice reading it out loud. And then you're going to close your eyes and memorize it. And then you're going to ask other people to give you insight. And that, coupled with the knowing God study, you put that together, you're going to be able to tell people about the hope they can find in Jesus, what he's done for us, what he's done for you. And you are ready to let rivers of living water flow out of you. So 
let's begin to equip ourselves so that the Holy Spirit can use us to take this message everywhere because that's the whole point. So act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God, keep putting it into practice and keep doing it. Now I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over you and then we're going to be done for the day. I know that you were drinking out of the fire hydrant again today, but luckily this stays on our Facebook page and you can go back, watch it over and over and over and over again. So Father, I just say thank you today for the story that you are telling. God, the story you've been telling since the foundation of the world. God, you are such an amazing storyteller. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your mercy. God, the mercy that you have, have poured out on our world ever since the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, because you knew before you, you created us that Jesus was going to have to be crucified. Thank you for the mercy and the grace that you offer. And I pray for this body of believers that are watching today. God, that you would continue to give us grace to commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to commit ourselves to the community of believers, the fellowship of believers, to commit ourselves to be hospitable, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk in humility before you. God, make us men and women of prayer that connect to you, that pray without ceasing. God, that continue to to come to the temple to pray, to pray with other believers, that carve out time in our schedules to pray. God, in the morning, in the evening, God, all night long, to, to carve out these times, to sit at your feet and to allow you to teach us and shape us and mold us into your image, to impart to us the grace and mercy that we find when we come before your throne. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us this week. God, help everyone that's listening to begin to connect scriptures this week that they have never connected before as they read, as they study, God, as they put this time in, that things would begin to connect in their hearts and minds in fresh ways, and God, that rivers of living water would begin to flow out of them. Give us grace to understand how to present this message. Give us grace, God, to present it to people everywhere we go, and God, to offer mercy and grace in the same way that you've offered it to us. And so I pray your blessing on all that are here today. Bless them and keep them. God, cause your face to shine on them. Lift your countenance to them. God, and give them peace and be gracious to them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Enjoy your lunch and God bless you.